Well, we're continuing our series this morning through Paul's uh, first letter to the Thessalonian church, uh, our series which we've entitled, Awaiting the Return of the King. Because as we work our way through this series, the overarching question we want to keep in our minds is how do we live as followers of Jesus Christ, the King, today, here and now, but in the light of his future return to come? whenever that may be. And to answer that, we're delving into what Paul writes to the Thessalonian church uh, and what's revealed about them as a church, as some of the earliest followers of Jesus. Remember that this letter was perhaps written around AD 50, uh, maybe less than 20 years after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended back to heaven. This is the fifth message in our series, and do catch up on YouTube or now on podcast as well, uh, on any of the previous four that you may have missed, uh, as it will really help you grasp where we've been and where we're headed, and particularly because 1 Thessalonians is very closely knitted together, just like many letters really, and if you imagine writing a letter yourself with sections referring back and building on what's been covered previously. And that is the case with our passage this morning. But just to remind us and help get our heads back into the series, uh, we've previously thought about how Paul, Silas, and Timothy founded this church in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, This was in uh, ancient Macedonia, or North Macedonia today. And you can read about that in Acts 17, how the church started And it came about as part of Paul's second missionary journey west from uh, Jerusalem and Antioch, spreading the gospel and founding churches as he went on his way and with his companions. But if you remember, they were essentially forced on from place to place, often violently, by a group of hostile Jews who followed them and raised up others as they went. Why did they do this? Well, because they refused to accept the gospel of Jesus that was being preached and refused to accept that Jesus was the Messiah that had come to save his people. But more than just rejecting that themselves, as we'll think about later, they were determined to fight against its spread, uh, both amongst their fellow Jews, but also amongst the Gentiles. And so Paul eventually arrives in Corinth, in Greece. He's seemingly fed up. He's tired, he's depressed, but having previously sent Timothy back to this church in Thessalonica, uh, where they'd probably only been able to be there a few weeks when they started the church, Timothy returns to Paul in Corinth, and he brings the most wonderful report of how this young church is getting on. And as we've seen, Paul is clearly so encouraged by this. And he spends much of his time in the opening uh, couple of chapters of this letter giving thanks for them, giving thanks for their faith, their love, and their hope, as we thought about first. And those are repeated throughout the letter. And we thought about three weeks ago, as I last preached on verses four to seven of chapter one, uh, with the title of Transformed Lives. And I want to pick up and continue from there this morning with Transform Lives Part 2. But in the meantime, Dave has led us through the end of chapter 1, looking at what makes a model church, both through our connections and partnerships with other churches, but 
primarily through us being uh, focused on the gospel and the gospel driving everything we do. And then last week, Dave looked at verses 1 to 12 of chapter 2 with Paul's model ministry in which, sadly, seemingly Paul needed to defend his ministry amongst the Thessalonians, not for the sake of his reputation, uh, which would probably be our motivation today, but for the sake of the gospel and for Jesus' ministry through him. And so Dave shared how Paul's ministry, and indeed a model ministry that we should all strive towards, isn't driven by a love for self, which is a real danger and temptation for us, but instead a love for God, a love for each other, and an awareness and anticipation of Jesus' return to come. So that's a quick recap that brings us up to our passage this morning, and we're going to read that together now. So as you can see on the screen, we're looking at verses 13 to 16 of 1 Thessalonians 2. Please do turn there if you've got a Bible, it'd be great, uh, and to follow along as we work through. So let's read together, verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, you may or may not remember when, uh, probably don't remember, when we looked at uh, verses 4 to 7 of chapter 1, Transformed Lives, part 1, if you will, my first point then was receiving the gospel. And so uh, you might fairly ask, what's the difference in our first point this morning? Because I just have two points this morning that we're going to consider, and they are two key evidences of lives that have been utterly transformed by the gospel. And they're the reason uh, that Paul says they continually give thanks to God, uh, God for. And the first point this morning is receiving the word of God. So you might fairly ask, well, what's the difference between that and our first point a few weeks ago of receiving the gospel? And in some ways, the answer is nothing. In the letter that Paul writes, he, he builds and he repeats on several themes throughout, as I said before, uh, and particularly faith, love, and hope go uh, on throughout the letter. And here in verse 13, I think Paul's building on what he wrote in chapter 1, and therefore we need to keep in our minds what we thought about in chapter 1, which is why I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it if, if you missed it. It's so easy for us to come to a new Sunday, uh, a new passage, a new sermon, and assume it's covering new ground and forget what's come immediately before. It's really important that we don't do that, and it's such an important principle in how we read and study the Bible 
generally, where things are progressively revealed to us as we read through. It's one of the reasons why it's so helpful and why we prioritize as a church working our way through a book or a section of the Bible consecutively to keep following the shape and the flow of the message that is unfolding. You would lose that if you jumped around back and forth. So with that being said, there are great similarities between our first point today of receiving the word of God and the first point three weeks ago of receiving the gospel. However, in chapter one, as we looked at before, Paul is particularly speaking to the Thessalonians about their election, their being chosen by God, which I won't go into again now, but do listen back. And the evidence of this is in the gospel coming to them in power and conviction. Whereas here, in verse 13 of chapter two, Paul's emphasis is on their recognition and acceptance that the word preached to them wasn't simply a human word, it wasn't just from Paul or Silas or Timothy, but it was the word of God itself. Now, how often do you think you hear someone speaking on behalf of someone else? Maybe you can think of it happening to you or you doing it yourself. Uh, I think it happens all the time in our world today. People speak apparently on behalf of men or of women or children or whatever group. Uh, I'm sure you'll have heard someone say, well, of course, men think that, dot, 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 whereas women are much more dot, 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 dot. And I'll leave you to fill in what you think those blanks might be. But whilst that, that might be funny, it can actually be really very serious as people uh, presume to speak on behalf of a particular group and sometimes spouting very dangerous and damaging abuse and oppression and injustice. We live in a world and a culture of the mysterious they and them around us. People love to build up a picture or conspiracy even of those against them, saying things like, well, of course, they would want you to think that, or let's get back at them. And yet the question is, who is this mysterious they and them which we're targeting and are speaking on behalf of? Now, that's speaking on behalf of a group, but what about on behalf of an individual? Again, this happens all the time. Uh, Maybe a husband speaking on behalf of a wife, or a wife speaking on behalf of a husband, and you might relate to that, uh, or a work colleague speaking on behalf of, of another, uh, or perhaps a cabinet minister speaking on behalf of the prime minister. And then how often do we see a prime minister then distance themselves from such remarks? Of course, there are people who deliberately imitate others and fraudulently impersonate people and organizations for financial gain. And that always really angers me because it's the particularly vulnerable that are often caught up in that. But the point I want to make is that it happens all the time. And yet what a thing it is, which perhaps we don't often think about, to presume to speak on behalf of someone else. Now, the examples I've just gone through were meant to flag the ways in which people inaccurately or even deliberately speak falsely on someone else's behalf. Yet, of course, we can genuinely represent and speak on behalf of someone else. Uh, It might be 
entirely appropriate for a husband or a wife to speak on behalf of their spouse or a colleague for another at work or whatever the scenario, and particularly if they've given us their exact words that they want us uh, to share or permission to represent them, to advocate for them. So uh, we have, you know, for example, power of attorney these days that exists for someone to represent and manage someone else's finances and their affairs. And yet still, what a responsibility that is. Now, you can probably guess where I'm heading with this, but what gives Paul the right to declare that the word he's sharing is the word of God itself? Surely that is the most presumptuous and potentially dangerous thing anyone could ever say. And that is absolutely right. Sadly, there have been so many down the ages and still today who presume to speak on behalf of God as his mouthpiece or claim they've got fresh revelation from Jesus. And yet in reality, they're nothing more than frauds, charlatans who are simply uh, seeking publicity and fame, money, power. That's the extreme end of things, uh, and there's sadly so much of that out there today online, on certain TV channels and elsewhere. Just a word of warning that it's very easy to slip into something like that ourselves. God willing, not deliberately, but using language that asserts us speaking on God's behalf. Now, we're not going to delve in particularly uh, to prophecy this morning. We need more time to cover it fully, except to say that speaking the word of God is quite literally what prophecy means. So often when we think about prophecy, we think about someone speaking about the future and events yet to come, and that's, that's, we call that foretelling. And I do believe there's a place for that. But actually, the majority of prophecy in the Bible is what we call forth-telling, speaking the word of God as it is for that time. And that's why you can quite justly, but we probably never think about it this way, you can quite justly call reading the Bible, reading the word of God, prophetic. And why I would argue that preaching is and should be prophetic as we preach and teach the word of God. But if we believe God has spoken to us or revealed something to us, it's very dangerous to use the language of God has told me or what God is saying to you is, you know, that kind of old-fashioned language, thus says the Lord. And again, it happens frequently in Christian circles and life. Maybe you've been caught up in it yourself. The damage that can be done through this is enormous. And it's one of the reasons the Bible's so clear that prophecies must be tested and actually dealt with incredibly severely if they're found to be false. Just read Deuteronomy 13 if you want to and you'll see how false prophets were put to death. Because who on earth are we to presume to speak on behalf of God? Now I don't say this to worry us or frighten us But I do think that generally, and I know this from my own life, generally as the church, as Christians, we've become way too relaxed and familiar in our relationship with God, who though astonishingly he's our loving, intimate father through Jesus, he's also the all-powerful, holy, as we just sang, sovereign ruler and judge of all. 
And so I'd urge you that even if you feel so powerfully that God's speaking to you and it's undeniable to you, I'd still encourage you to share it in the manner of, I believe God may be saying, or I believe God may have revealed to me. And that is a much more humble and godly approach that can then be weighed up and we can weigh it against scripture and particularly bring it to the elders and the leaders in a church. So having said all that, How and why can Paul make such an outrageous claim to be speaking the word of God? Well, there are four reasons which I want to just quickly uh, give to hopefully reassure you. Firstly, what is this word that Paul is speaking of? Why was it that Paul, uh, what was it, sorry, that Paul and Silas and Timothy were sharing with them? And of course, as we thought about in chapter one, it is the gospel itself. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. The amazing news that we broken, fallen, sinful men and women who are hostile to God, who've made ourselves enemies of him, as we just sung in that song, and we're awaiting his just judgment upon us, eternal separation in hell. God couldn't stand to see that happen. And because of his astonishing love for us, he sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, to die in our place, John 3.16, as we started the service with. And Jesus bore the Father's wrath. He completely and perfectly dealt with our sins once and for all, forever, so that we can have life in all its fullness forever again with him. And what's more, it's a free gift of grace that we simply receive through faith. That is the word that they were sharing. That is the wonder of the gospel And I would long for you to take hold of that today if you haven't yet. But it's a word that they would never have made up or claimed for themselves. Paul writes in another one of his letters, uh, actually where where he is when he wrote this letter to the Thessalonians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he writes, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. As well as it being received by some, how often were Paul and Silas and Timothy and all the others oppressed and ridiculed for preaching such a gospel? And yet they pressed on. And remember, this gospel came to them through eyewitness testimony. And that brings to the second reason Paul can make such a claim. Who are they and where does this claim come from? Where does this word originate from? Now, we've mentioned how unusually in this letter, Paul doesn't introduce himself uh, by declaring his position and his authority as an apostle, which he does in his other letters. And yet we read this in verse 6 of chapter 2. We are not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. Now again, we can't delve into exactly what's meant by apostle this morning. Uh, If you go back to Acts 1, uh, verses 21 and 22, we're given the definition for the original 12 who had specific authority and perhaps power from Jesus. And yet we might fairly ask, well, what about Paul? And for that matter, Silas and Timothy. But regardless of whether you consider them apostles in the same sense, they were bearing what we call the apostolic message, the apostolic gospel, 
that was passed on directly to them through the 12 eyewitnesses of all these events. They had a specific ministry and authority, and in many ways were like the Old Testament prophets, which Paul mentions in verse 15. Third reason he could make such a claim, well, what evidence was there amongst those who received this word? Was it just great speech, but simply words with no effect? Uh, If I can say it like much of what we might hear today, you know, life coaching. No, look at the end of verse 13, where Paul writes that this word of God is indeed at work in them who believe. And if we go back to chapter one, we can see how the gospel showed itself, it evidenced itself in them with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. That was verse five of chapter one. But then final reason, what did this word lead to? Was it to health and wealth, happiness, success, the prosperity gospel that all the kind of things that we would probably claim if we were making up such a word ourselves, absolutely not. Very opposite. In fact, it led to great suffering and persecution. And as we'll see shortly, this in itself was further evidence that they truly accepted and received the gospel, the word of God. We must move on, but this is the first key mark in our passage today of a life transformed by the gospel that causes Paul to give thanks to God for continually receiving the word of God, receiving the gospel for what it is. Not some human word that's made up by man. Why would it be? It's simply foolishness. I can tell you 100% that if that's what it is, I would not be preaching to you today. It's pointless, it's meaningless. It'd be far better doing something else entirely. And so the question is, how about you this morning? What do you say about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe who he says he is? Do you believe this is the word of God? If you do, I promise it will transform your life. But as we move on to our second and final point this morning, it will transform your life in ways that you may not expect, or indeed even want, because the second key mark that Paul gives continual thanks for that reveals a life transformed by the gospel is endurance through suffering. Looking at verses 14 to 16. Now, we've thought quite a lot about this uh, throughout various sermons and different series over the last several months, and I'm sure several years. The reason for that is because whether we like it or not, And of course, we most often don't like it. Suffering is part and parcel of being a Christian, or at least it should be. And we've challenged ourselves before in thinking about why it might be that we're not facing suffering for following Jesus, if that is our experience. And usually the answer to that will lie with us and our willingness to speak up, to live the lives Jesus calls us to, which will cause friction, definitely, in the world that we live in today. If you remember back to uh, Transform Lives Part 1, three weeks ago, our second point was transmitting the gospel. So we thought about having truly received the gospel, we then seek to live lives that flow out with the gospel. And in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 1, 
Paul says that the Thessalonians, the way they did this and and how we should do this is by imitating and modeling what it means to follow Jesus. They imitated Paul and his companions, and most importantly, they imitated Jesus himself before then being a model for others to imitate. Well, in our passage, in in verse 14, Paul again speaks of imitation saying that the church in Thessalonica became imitators of God's churches in Judea. But the point he's making here is quite different from in chapter 1, because here Paul is recognizing the suffering that they have endured in Thessalonica, the persecution that's come their way for following Jesus. Remember the riot that was incited when this church was founded Uh, in Acts 17, and how Paul and Silas and Timothy had to flee for their lives in the middle of the night. It gives you a glimpse of the opposition and the persecution that they would have faced as a church. And Paul says they've become just like their brothers and sisters in Judea, who were facing continual persecution and opposition also. It's not that the Thessalonian church were deliberately seeking to imitate them, in bringing suffering on themselves. That's absurd, it's crazy. We're not called to deliberately induce suffering. You know, don't go out and try and pick a fight with someone. Uh, We're not some sadistic cult that's trying to bring pain and suffering deliberately on ourselves. But we know that as followers of Jesus, who were so clear about this, following him will cause suffering. And it may be incredibly painful Do you see who Paul writes this suffering originates from to the church in Thessalonica? Verse 14, you suffered from your own people. These may very well have been people that they'd grown up with, that they were previously close friends with, maybe even family. And yet following Jesus had completely changed that. These people, their own people, now turned against them. And that must have been so painful, just as you may have uh, experienced in your own life. And people experience this so painfully all around the world, particularly where following Jesus means total rejection from your family, sometimes even being declared dead and never having contact again. You know, that's one of the most powerful witnesses I, I think I've, her testimony of of someone who made that decision to accept Jesus in a very hostile place and their parents conducted a funeral for them declaring that they they were dead and they were never going to have any more contact with them again. That is a real cost of following Jesus that probably most of us here uh, can't begin to grasp and haven't had to face that. But that is why this mark of being able to endure throughout such suffering is so clearly a sign of a life that has been transformed by the gospel. Because otherwise, how could you do it? Why would you do it? Why would you be able to, you know, not that you would have wanted it, but to, to continue on as your family conduct a funeral for you and have nothing more to do with you? Unless you know the depths of God's love for you, the lengths that Jesus went to for you, and in which case we can endure all manner of suffering for his glory, 
knowing that we're ultimately secure forever, and because he can, and he does, produce amazing fruit through suffering. And uh, on that point, we often pray for suffering to be removed because it's painful. You know, we don't like it, the clue's in the name. And yet again, some of the most powerful testimonies I've heard are from Christians who truly know what it means to suffer, like being in the persecuted church or suffering chronic illness, debilitating disease for many years or sudden bereavement. And amazingly, they are able to share about the incredible blessings that have come through their suffering. And so they don't pray for an end to their suffering but they pray that God would continue to use it for his glory. That is a life transformed by the gospel, and you can tell a lot about a person, about a Christian, by how we suffer, and that surely challenges every one of us. Now, we can't finish this morning without me touching on Paul's final words throughout verses 15 and 16, even if it would be much easier not to. Paul writes from the middle of verse 14, you suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Now, this passage has led to a lot of controversy and debate. Uh, These verses have been described as violent, vindictive, intemperate, bitter, harsh. Some commentators have claimed they are so out of keeping with the rest of Paul's teaching that there is no way that he can have written them, and it must have been inserted by someone else. Unfortunately, well... For them, there is absolutely no manuscript evidence to support that. It is definitely part of Paul's letter. And so the question or attack made is surely Paul is being deeply anti-Semitic here. And given what's going on in Israel and Gaza at this very moment and with repercussions all around the world, I want to be very careful and sensitive here. Paul is absolutely not being anti-Semitic He is not writing against the Jewish people as a people, as an ethnic race. And in fact, it's preposterous for people to claim that that is what he was doing. Paul was Jewish himself, and more than that, he was deeply proud of his Jewish heritage. And even more so, and most compellingly, his love and heart for his Jewish family is such that he could write this in Romans 9 verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. What a statement that is. I'm always unbelievably challenged by that myself when I read that. What he's saying is he would forfeit his own salvation for the sake of his people, for the Jews, for his brothers and sisters. That is astonishing. And uh, yeah, I don't know whether I could say the same. The point Paul is making in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 2, as is made elsewhere in the New Testament, is a theological judgment against the Jews who refused to accept Jesus as Messiah and whose hostility led to his death and who are continuing to fight and oppose his gospel through the apostles. 
and the church. It is not against all Jews, i.e. the Jewish race. And the way that this has been horribly, horribly misinterpreted over the years is so appalling and abhorrent with the church deeply responsible, the Christian church deeply responsible and accountable for anti-Semitism over the years, including, even though we often try, you know, people will try and ignore it, heroes of the faith like Martin Luther, who as wonderful as he was and did some incredible things for us, for the church, in his later years, and we can try and you know, mitigate a little bit, say he was getting ill in his later years, he was probably greatly frustrated at seeing little fruit amongst the Jews he was with. Luther wrote some awful things uh, that were deeply anti-Semitic. We've got to be absolutely clear, this is theological judgment against the Jews who refuse to believe, not ethnic, against the Jewish race. Why does Paul write they're hostile to everyone? Again, it's directed at these hostile Jews who are not only refusing to believe themselves, they made it their life's mission to oppose the gospel spread amongst the world, amongst the, gospel, uh, amongst the Gentiles. And so in seeking to prevent the spread of the gospel, the only message of salvation that the entire world needs to hear of course, they make themselves hostile to everyone. Hopefully that makes sense. Sadly, but justly, because of their continued opposition and rejection of the gospel, rejection of Jesus as Messiah and Lord, judgment comes, as indeed it will come on us if we similarly reject Jesus today. Well, that's quite a somber note uh, to finish on. But we can't miss verses 15 and 16. As much as it's tempting, we can't just ignore difficult passages of Scripture, even though as a preacher it's very tempting. But as we return to our overarching series question, how do we live as followers of Jesus Christ the King today, but in the light of his future return to come? Our answer from this morning's passage is with lives that are utterly transformed by the gospel, which shows itself through receiving the word of God, receiving the gospel for what it truly is, receiving Jesus as Messiah and Lord, and living our lives for his glory, which is perhaps most powerfully revealed in endurance through suffering. Are we willing and ready to suffer for his name, for his glory, and even willingly welcome suffering for the blessings and fruit that it can bring. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you for the passage that we've studied together this morning. Lord, there are some wonderful truths revealed within, but also some incredibly challenging and hard-hitting truths that we need to hear. And we pray, Father, that you would work in our hearts, that we wouldn't just ignore things and uh, resist and reject, but we would allow you to move amongst us, to shape us 
and change us. Father, I pray for all of us this morning that we would truly receive your word, Lord, that we would recognize the truth of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus really did come in person to die on the cross on our behalf, and that simply through faith in him, through turning away from our sin and accepting it to be placed on Jesus, that we can be utterly forgiven, we can come back into perfect relationship with you, and we can know life in all its fullness now and for eternity. Father, please help us to truly receive your word, receive the gospel, and allow it to shape and change and transform our lives And help us, Father, to live lives that glorify you. And perhaps most challengingly, in the way that we face suffering, in enduring suffering. Lord, forgive us for the way that so often we avoid suffering and we prevent it happening because we don't live faithfully to you. We don't speak for you. We don't live in the way that Jesus calls us to, which will cause friction in the world around us. Father, please help us to... But then when suffering does come, help us to take heart, as Jesus uh, himself declared in John's gospel, that he has overcome and that we can face whatever comes in his strength, for his glory, and knowing that you can do amazing things through suffering, even as awful and challenging as it is for us to face. Lord, we do just want to also cry out to you for mercy on behalf of the church for the way that this passage and others have been horribly misinterpreted and applied in a way that brings such hatred and uh, anti-Semitism even towards the Jewish race. Lord, that is awful. It is abhorrent. It is evil. And we cry out to you for mercy. Help us to realize that that is not what's going on in this passage. It is a judgment against these uh, Jews then who were hostile and who were rejecting and opposing the gospel, just as that judgment will be on us if we reject you, if we reject the gospel, if we oppose the spread of the only message of salvation that every person in this world needs to hear. Lord, please, would you be at work in our lives, continue to shape and change us. May we be transformed by you to glorify you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.